0: Dripping down
1: science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to a new edition and a new series of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hi, Kat. Hello. And with Dave Ansell this week. Hi Hi there. Now, on the way, scientists are going to get the go-ahead next week to make chimeric embryos, which will merge humans and animal cells. But why do we need to do this, and what will it help us, and in what way will it tell us things? That's coming up. Also, why might it be worth talking to your flowers. Prince Charles does it. People said he was mad for doing it but it turns out the scientists have now discovered that rice really can respond to sound. But how? And also scientists have invented the world's smallest thermometer. It's the size of just a single molecule. Plus we're trying to find out whether
2: medicine can tell its isobars from its elbow in this painful question from Kat in Leeds.
3: I broke my
4: elbow when I was younger, and now, when there's a sudden change in the weather, the joint really aches. I assume it's got something to do with the change in air pressure as a new weather front moves into the area, and if that's right, then how will it make my arm hurt?
2: And in kitchen science, I'll be asking you to investigate this eerie sound. weird definitely and if you want to try and try it grab an expensive wine glass and some water or some wine
5: oh it puts my teeth right on edge anyway this week is also our question and answer show and we will try and answer any question you have for us and on the way we're going to try and explain why onions make you cry but not if you're wearing contact lenses and also why does sunburn take a while to kick in
1: thanks cat so if you've got any questions on science technology or medicine of that ilk email us chris at nakedscientist.com the Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, welcome back and welcome to a brand new series of The Naked Scientists. And we start with something which could be very, very important for embryologists. But what's it all about? Kat, why do scientists want to create chimeric embryos?
5: Well, this is, as you say, it's a really interesting technology. And, um, you know, the sort of tabloid press gets very excited about this and starts drawing pictures of humans with rabbit heads. So what's it all about? Well... Um, it's all to do with trying to make a source of human stem cells. Now, at the moment, the way that you make human embryonic stem cells is to take a human embryo and to to try and grow it in the lab, extract the stem cells, and then you can do experiments with them. And the idea is that then we could use these stem cells to heal damaged brains, damaged organs, all this kind of stuff. But obviously, you have a lot of ethical issues with using human embryos in this way. And human embryos are pretty hard to come by as well. So um, what the scientists are proposing to do is that you could actually make hybrid embryos so what you would do is you would take the egg cell from another animal so something like a rabbit um, you take out all the rabbit dna from that that rabbit egg and then you put in the dna the nucleus from a human cell
1: just any old human cell
5: well pretty much yeah an adult cell so and then you Activate this egg. You kind of give it a kickstart, and it will develop. It will start developing. Now you only need to let it develop for a couple of days till you start making these stem cells. So this is really literally—it's a tiny ball of cells. So it's not some kind of bizarre rabbity human ear thing. Um, you've just got a tiny ball of cells. You then extract the stem cells from this little football of cells. You can grow them in a dish, and essentially you've there—you've got human stem cells without having to use. Human embryos. So in fact it's a way to, to get stem cells to study and potentially for curative purposes but without actually having to use human embryos. So in some ways it's ethically complex because we're making hybrids but in a lot of ways it's ethically simpler because you're not using human embryos.
2: Will the stem cells have any rabbitness left in them once you've made them?
5: Well that, that's an interesting question. I mean certainly um, they will have uh, the mitochondria, these are the little energy factories from the rabbit cells. Uh, from the rabbit egg in them. because and there's is, a little
1: bit of DNA in there, isn't there?
5: Yeah, exactly. There's a tiny little bit of mitochondrial DNA in there. The, the key thing is that the scientists are in no way <laughs> proposing that you would put these hybrid embryos into a woman and grow them. Um, these are, are purely to grow into little balls of cells to to get the stem cells out of them and it's a way of getting stem cells to study and stem cells potentially for therapy without actually having to use human embryos
1: Does anyone know if this will work or is it purely at the stage where no one's been allowed to try so that's the first step?
5: Well, in the UK, um, as far as I know, no one's been allowed to try, and we're expecting this week uh, the announcement whether um, some scientists have actually been given a license to try this kind of technology. Um, there's a lot of evidence that it might well work. I mean, scientists are really pressing on with this kind of cloning technology, and you know we know that cloning does work certainly within the same species. So we have things like Dolly the sheep and cloned cows and cloned um, cats and things like that. So I- are you? i am certainly not a clone some people think i might be um but no i think it's it's potentially very very exciting because stem cell research really needs to press on i i certainly think and um and ideally to press on actually without using human eggs would be a really really good way to go
1: thanks kat we'll just have to watch this space and see actually how this progresses but personally i think it too is a very good idea now turning from things that are human and human-like to the plant world because for a long time people have said talk to your plants they'll grow better and people suggested perhaps it was the carbon dioxide you were breathing all over them that made them grow better but now there's evidence from researchers over in uh, Korea that in fact rice plants can hear. Uh, It's a group of researchers here at the National Institute of Agriculture and Biotechnology and it's guy called Mi Jong Jong who's led the research in South Korea. They were interested to see whether plants would just respond to any old sounds to start with. So the first thing they did was to start by playing uh, 14 different tracts of classical music to rice plants. And uh, One of the things they started with was Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata and they failed. They didn't get any kind of response from the rice plants and what they were doing was looking at any genes that were being turned on and off in the rice plants as the music was played. So then they started playing pure tones and they found that when they played s- sounds at 125 hertz or 250 hertz at these rice plants, two genes in particular, one called RBCS and another one called ALD, turned on. They became more active. And then they found that there are certain bits of DNA next door to those two genes, which seem to encode this sound responsiveness, and they could borrow those bits of dna and put them next to other genes and make those other genes come on when they played these sounds at the rice and why they think this is important is it might be possible to program the rice genetically so that when you play a certain sound you unleash a certain genetic program in the plants such as having some kind of resistance against pests or something on in the plant but only when you play a sound so as soon as you detect pests you could play a sound at the rice it would turn on its resistance mechanisms to kill the pests off but you wouldn't waste energy killing pests off that aren't there when they aren't there if you see what i mean
5: that sounds incredible i mean how, how do they think it works is it vibrating some molecule in the cells or well something? we know
1: plants are sensitive to the environment anyway because they have to be sensitive to light so they grow in the right direction towards the sun they have to be sensitive to gravity so that they put their roots down into the ground so vibration sound It's pretty much the same as just wind effects, which plants have to be sensitive to as well because they need to make sure they're strongest on the side facing the wind. So it could be just a manifestation of that. But at the same time, there's got to be a linkage between the outside world and which genes they've got turned on. So it looks like they've just stumbled on that and might be really useful.
5: But they don't like Beethoven.
1: Indeed. Now, the
2: US military has come up with a way of sealing holes in levees and dams. Now, during Hurricane Katrina, huge numbers of levees, which are the long dikes along the side of rivers to stop them flooding in a, in a big river flood, flooding out over into the farmland on the um, towns around the site, caused loads of these levees to collapse, flooding huge areas of Louisiana and New Orleans. Once the levee's been breached, there's very little that anyone can do about it because it's a huge hole, a huge amount of water flowing through I it. You can't
5: just stick your finger in it.
2: I don't think it would work, no. Uh-huh. You'd need <laughs> quite a large hole, quite a large finger. So, what's their solution, Dave? Well, they've decided to make essentially a very, very large finger, but out of a very. <laughs> this is going to sound dodgy if I'm not careful. <laughs> Basically, they um, pick up a long tube um, from a helicopter, and this is an inflatable tube. And when they drop it in the water, they drop it slightly upstream of the hole, so it gets f- swept down to the hole. And as it falls in the water, it fills up with water, so it gets heavy and solid. And before they put the big tube in, they put a couple of sort of supports and sort of um, tripods in the way. And with any like this big um, mass, big fabric mass, it'll so come over, fill up the hole. And it will block up the hole, and you can do this quickly because you can pick it up with a helicopter, drop it in. This before just it still sounds a too bit big. chancy.
1: How do you get it in position and make sure it actually works?
2: Well, it's very hard to get there with a boat; it's very dangerous with a boat, and you can't carry it there because it's too heavy. So, what you do is get two or three helicopters, pick it up with these helicopters, and very gently drop it in exactly the right place. It gets swept into the hole and hopefully it blocks it. While there's a, it gets a hurricane Katrina raging in
1: the background, it's a plan. <laughs> I didn't say it was foolproof, but we'll see what happens.
5: So, it is like a very big thing. But Dave, that doesn't sound like. I mean, dive. it sounds
1: a bit. Naf to say but it doesn't sound like rocket science so why is no one already doing this or are they um i don't think anyone's really noticed as a need and the it's
2: just the hurricane katrina's just sort of concentrated lots of people's ideas in fact they were going to use it as to make sort of quick inflatable jetties the navy was going to use it so if they wanted to load a ship very quickly could just inflate this big jetty and they suddenly discovered hang on a minute that'd be useful for f- filling up holes in levees which they hadn't thought of before
5: Brilliant. Anyway, if if any of you have a dream of being Spider-Man, or Spider-Pig, if you're a fan of The Simpsons, uh, this could be a step closer after the latest research by a group of Italian physicists. Now, over the past couple of years, scientists have started to understand how creatures like geckos and spiders run up the walls, and this is because their feet are covered with tiny hairs, and they actually stick to surfaces using the combined power of the weak atomic attraction between the atoms in their feet and the atoms in the surface they're on, and these are known as, as van der Waals forces and this is really incredible this is atomic forces holding geckos onto the walls. Now some researchers have tried to make uh, adhesives and adhesive tapes based on this technology and there's one called Geckel which was in the news recently but researchers have been kind of a bit sceptical if this kind of stuff could ever attach a human to anything but now Professor Nicola Pugno um, who's engineer and physicist at the Polytechnic of Turin in Italy has done some sums to show that a combination of a sort of a carbon nanotube based Velcro along with these van of forces might actually be enough to support a human and this could make our spider-man dreams come true so potentially you could use it in all sorts of ways so for things like space exploration you could stick astronauts to things um or you know sticky boots and gloves so window cleaners can climb up skyscrapers and in fact you could even use this technology underwater now before you get carried away and uh, you know start sticking the spider pig on the ceiling i do have to tell you that the work is actually not even at the prototype stage yet this is just the calculations that show that it actually could support the weight of humans sounds
1: exciting though doesn't it
5: it is but the the one drawback is that our human muscles aren't really built like geckos and in fact if we were just trying to cling onto a wall for hours we'd get really quite extreme muscle fatigue so we need to find some way of of getting over that but as soon as they do i'm up there
1: I can believe it as well. Right, Uh, the world's smallest thermometer now. Researchers over in Canada have stumbled upon what they think is the technique to make the world's tiniest way of measuring temperature. And it's a researcher called Cecile Fredin, who's at McMaster University in Ontario in Canada. And they've been using a molecule called GFP, which is green fluorescent protein. It's the same stuff that makes jellyfish glow green underwater, and which biologists have known about for years. What you do is shine light of a certain wavelength at this GFP molecule, and it just glows green. It's perfect for labelling cells and things and tissues because it's, po- it's perfectly harmless. But what these researchers in Canada decided to do was to take a look at how it produces the light. And they made a really interesting discovery. It's not on all the time. It blinks on and off. And the rate at which it blinks on and off changes with the temperature. And as the, t- as the temperature of wh- where the molecule finds itself goes up, the rate of blinking goes down. And you can measure, or at least they were able to, by putting these molecules in water with a very accurate thermometer and a very accurate uh, temperature. They were able to measure with one degree accuracy, just based on the blinking rate of this molecule, how hot things were. So this is able to measure temperatures literally at the level of an individual molecule. It must be the world's smallest thermometer.
5: Oh, Brilliant. Not very good for telling your temperature if you're a, a sick then.
1: No, it wouldn't be very good for humans, but it, they say it could be perfect for measuring the temperature of individual little bits inside a cell, if you want to know the temperature of an individual compartment inside a cell, or if you want to measure the temperature on things like these lab-on-a-chip microfluidic devices. These are diagnostic devices the size of a TV remote control, where you want to have chemical reactions going on on, on your palm, if you like, so you could diagnose things in a hurry. So they, they say it could be really, really good for that, because you can precisely measure the temperature.
6: The Naked Scientists,
1: supported by the Welcome Trust. Now, as is normal on the Naked Scientists, we're going to do a bit of kitchen science, but for a change, we thought we'd ask Dave to come into the studio to have a go at this. Um, So, Dave, introduce us. What are you doing? Well, this is based
2: on an experiment, might sound a bit strange. It's based on an experiment which we've done before on the Naked Scientists. So, what you want is quite a good quality wine glass, ideally one when you ping it, it'll last for quite a long time, like this. (laughs)
1: You must have expensive taste in your house, Dave. I must say, very expensive glass.
2: <laughs> I have some friends who like smashing wine glasses with sound. Right, wine, OK.
1: So <laughs> what do you want people to do with this glass? OK, so... Not smash want, it, presumably. We're not trying to
2: smash it this time. What we want to do is put a little bit of water into the glass. Then you may have done this before.
1: What about wine? Can you have wine? Will that wine, work? wine would
2: work too. any kind of liquid. Um, lick your fingers Whiskey. to make sure they're
1: nice and clean. And then wet them with the water. And then if you So rub- hang on. Lick your fingers to make sure they're <laughs> clean and then put them in the clean water in the glass. There's more bacteria in your mouth.
2: Yeah, but you're quite often your fingers are covered with some oil which will seem oh, okay, working very it. well.
1: Okay, okay. so you, you want to get the finger nice and oil free. Yeah, that's right. the idea. Okay,
2: okay. and then when, when it's wet, I want you to rub it around the glass and you get this kind of eerie sound.
1: Yeah, but everyone knows that works.
2: OK, everyone knows that works. Now, the clever thing we want you to do this time is to start it ringing like that, and then ju- when it's ringing really nicely, when you let go, it'll keep ringing. Now when you let go, I want you to pour the water out while it's still ringing, and listen to it and see if anything strange happens.
1: OK, if you have got a wine glass of adequate crystal quality, as does Dr Dave, and you can try that at home, what happens?
5: I think Dave's getting paid too much. Anyway, we have some questions here. And uh, we have a question here who's from Jennifer, who I think is in Colombia, And she says, hi, Naked Scientist. She's loved the show for a long time and can't imagine life without Dr. Chris's voice in my head. Oh, we can't either. It won't go away. Oh. Um, anyway, she has a food-related question. And she says, when she's wearing her contact lenses, chopping onions doesn't make her eyes water. Uh, but obviously it does when you're not wearing um, contact lenses. So does this mean the only part of your eye that's covered by the contact lens is sensitive to the onion vapours? And I've noticed this as well. When I wear my specs and chop up onions, I'm crying like a baby, and when I've got my contact lenses in, I'm fine. What's what's the deal?
1: It's intriguing, isn't it? Um, Everyone's noticed this onion effect, and people just think, oh, there's something in the onions that's making my eyes hurt. But what's really intriguing is next time you're cutting onions in the kitchen, or wherever you choose to cut onions, on the Barbie or whatever, Time, how long it takes, between cutting into the onion and the spray you can see coming up under the knife, coming at you, and the time it takes before your eyes start reacting. And it's really interesting. You'll see there's a big delay between the onion being chopped up and you feeling the sting. And the reason is that there's a chemical reaction going on the minute you start breaking into the onion that starts to trigger... The eye smarting effect. And what this chemical reaction is, there are enzymes locked away in the cells of the onion called allinases. And they're named after the family of things that you find, like onion and garlic and scullion and uh, what else? Chives. They're all, in, they're all in the same family. They're, Alums, the, ali- they're the allium family. That's why it's called allinase. This breaks down a family of chemicals which are also in the cells called amino acid sulfoxides. And they're the smelly things that make onions smell like onion. And as the enzyme starts chewing into them, it releases something called sulfenic acid. And sulfenic acid then breaks down into another chemical, which is called synpropanethial S oxide. And that's the irritant. It comes squirting out of the onion towards your eyes, binds to the front of your eye, the cornea, which is very rich in nerve supply. It's got some of the m- densest nerve fibers in the body there, which signal pain. And this is an irritant. And these nerve fibres are wired up to your lacrimal gland that makes tears because your eye correctly says if there's something irritating it, it's probably a foreign body in the eye. Therefore, the way to get rid of it is to activate more tears and wash it out. That's why you cry. But why does it take time before that kicks in? Because that chemical reaction has to happen. Why should a contact lens make a difference? Because the contact lens sits on the front of your eye, in front of the cornea, where there's the most nerves. It stops the chemical getting into contact with the nerves And instead, because contact lens wearers probably make slightly more tears because they've got a foreign body in their eye all the time, it's washing the stuff off of the contact lens and down your tear duct before it has a chance to irritate the nerves in the front of the eye. So it's true. I reckon it is.
5: And actually, we've just had a question straight in from Philip Kroll, who I think is in Germany. And he says he's just come back from holiday in Greece. Oh, that sounds lovely. And um, he didn't yeah, manage I to... I wouldn't... I don't
1: know. It's a bit hot and or well, yeah. two fires. <laughs> it is a,
5: a wee bit hot, especially <laughs> in some places. Um, but he's heard this rumour about cold beer and a wet towel on the sun. And he says uh, if you wrap a beer on a hot day on the beach in a wet towel and leave it in the sun, it will cool down, which seems unlikely but not impossible. And I think the key to this is the old latent heat of vaporisation. What do you reckon, Dale? I reckon
2: it probably is, yeah. Because when water turns from a liquid into a gas, it needs lots and lots and lots of energy and that's why if you, when you sweat on a windy day um, you cool down because the water evaporates off your skin which absorbs lots of energy which cools you down and essentially I think that's basically what the um, the wet towel is doing is it's, um, it's evaporating so that's absorbing lots of energy cooling everything down, it's cooling down um, I'm not sure why it would work better on a hot in the sun than in the sh- shade. But
5: though. you're encouraging more vaporisation. It would surely work best in the wind,
2: they? wouldn't it, David? Yeah, if you, you could get it in a gentle breeze. Ideally, you want something nice and windy. You probably don't want the sun too much sun on the outside because yeah. the sun will be heating it up, unless the sun heating it up is causing air currents. So the air is heating it up, wind. so it's making, making its own wind because yeah. it gets hot, the air expands, and it floats upwards. Uh, I dragging I mean, more
5: scientifically, out. that might work. So I, if anyone wants to try it, then uh, let's know.
1: I did try this, actually, when I was in America because I went to this conference in Boston in 1999 and it was so hot. It was, it was really, really hot, even by Boston standards. And the guys... Uh, I was staying at MIT... Overlook how this wonderful, I mean, students in America are so lucky they have this amazing student accommodation. Here you are in Cambridge, what do you get? You get a view of Mill Road or something to look at. There you get the Charles River. And I was in this room, it was really hot, no air conditioning. And they said that they would let me borrow a fan from Reception for $5. So I thought, that's good, i here's my $5. So I took this fan up to my room and I thought, all this is doing is moving hot air. From outside into my room and making me hotter. So I'll apply a bit of physics, and I went and got my room towel. They gave me one towel. It was the size of a postage stamp, so it wouldn't have dried even even me. And and I dunked it under under water in the sink, made it really wet, and draped it over the fan. And for a while, it worked beautifully because uh, the cold air coming through was evaporating water off of the towel bringing down the temperature of the air going through, and cooling my room down. That is until the fan blew up and filled the room with smoke, because it (laughs) it got the water in it. But uh, it was a great bit of physics. I've I've
5: done that before, wrapping myself in in damp sheets when it's really, really hot and there's no air con. Well,
1: remind me not to come around your place if your bed's like that. But uh, here's a question, talking about heat and and sun and things. This one's for you, it's from Brendan. Uh, He says, when I get sunburn, it seems like it takes a long time before the sun's damage appears on my skin. Sometimes I don't see it or feel it until later in the day. Why is that and why does sunburn seem to hide and where in the meantime?
5: Well, what's happening when the sun's on your skin is that it's actually causing damage in your skin. And it's um, the radiation, ultraviolet radiation in the sun is zooming into your skin cells and causing the DNA in your cells to be damaged. Now, this is prompting a lot of uh, emergency reactions to go on in your skin cells, going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, we're really damaged.
7: Have they um, go again? <laughs> oh, Sorry, I no. couldn't resist that. I'm sorry.
5: <laughs> That's my skin cell voice. You should hear my nerve cell voice. It's totally different. Um, anyway, they realise they're damaged. And, uh, and lots of... Um, Signalling pathways, gene expression gets switched on in response to this damage to try and either patch up the cells that have been damaged by the sun or to, uh, to kill the cells to protect your body from this damage. And this actually takes some time to get going. And at the same time, uh, because you've damaged your skin... Um, there's going to be sort of an immune response going on as well. Your body is activating itself to the damage. So this is why you're going to go red, you're going to get inflammation. And in some really serious cases, you'll get um, skin blistering and swelling. Uh, but this all does take time because these are biological processes that the sensing of damage is quite quick, but the actual getting the response going might well take a couple of hours.
1: Brilliant. So I shall remember that next time I'm out barbecuing myself. And it's best myself.
5: not to get sunburned if you want to reduce your risk of skin cancer, of course.
1: Absolutely. Uh, right, if you are, would like us to answer your science questions, anything medical, scientific or technological, it's Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Cat as The Naked Scientist. Uh, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Any questions, we'll take them.
5: Well, get going. Um, Big businesses are notorious for being difficult to get through to, especially if you can't read or write. And also the company happens to be cutting down forests in which you live. Now, this isn't really a problem for us in the UK, but it is a problem for the Benjeli Pygmies who live in the Congo. And now technology has actually come to their rescue with what's been nicknamed rather charmingly Pygmy FM. And here's Mike Hopkin from The Nature Podcast talking to Scott Poynton of the Tropical Forest Trust.
8: For thousands of years, the Benjeli Pygmies have lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle in the heart of the northern Congo. Unfortunately for them, their home is slap-bang in the middle of one of the world's richest sources of prime hardwood, and these semi-nomadic people are forced to share the forest with international logging companies. For years, the Benjeli have accepted logging as a fact of life, without much means to air their grievances with CIB, the company that holds extensive logging rights in the Republic of Congo, the Pygmies have been unable to tell the loggers which trees they would like to see left alone. But now, with consumers demanding more sustainably harvested timber, CIB has realised that its profits are at stake. So it has enlisted the help of development groups to set up a community radio station that aims to allow the Benjeli to speak up. I asked Scott Poynton of the Tropical Forest Trust, a charity that promotes responsible forest management, about the need to put the Benjeli on the airwaves.
9: Part of the problem with the uh, the pygmy communities living in that area, well, throughout Central Africa really, is that they're, they're semi nomadic. It's uh, today they can be in one place and tomorrow they'll be somewhere else. Um, they also are non literate. They, you know, you can't send them a letter. They don't have a letter box that you can contact them through. And also they don't have. They're an egalitarian society, so they don't have a village head. So you can't just go and talk to one person. So it was actually Jerome Lewis's idea, and Jerome had been working. With these Pygmy communities for many years, Jerome had the idea of establishing a radio station by which, you know, using you know, robust wind-up radio technology, that we could uh, have some broadcasts made by the communities themselves, whereby they can communicate with the company, and the company can put out its own broadcasts, and thereby establishing a dialogue—not not a direct dialogue, you know, sort of two-way radio—but a dialogue nonetheless where ideas can be exchanged. And the thoughts of the communities can be can be put on air and uh, and can reach the company.
8: The radio station, at first perhaps inevitably nicknamed Pygmy FM, has now been formally named Biso Nabiso, which means between us in the local Lingala language. A few pilot shows have already been made, and in the traditional community radio style, feature a mix of debate and music. But the pygmies still need a way to tell CIB exactly which trees they particularly value, and this is where the project gets really clever. With the help of anthropologist Jerome Lewis of the London School of Economics, who has lived on and off with the Benjeli for years, the project's organisers have created special handheld computer consoles for the pygmies to carry while roaming through the forest. The devices use GPS to log automatically the locations of important trees and sites. That way, CIB, which has always practised selective logging, can avoid these precious, specific resources.
9: They um, put together a series of icons and they have a decision tree whereby the, uh, the the pygmy communities can go into the forest and it's a very easy technology. The, it takes about five minutes to explain what it's all about uh, and the Pygmies are pretty smart people. They know what's going on. They may never have seen a computer before but they can work out what this technology is aiming to do and they've embraced it because They can go out into the forest and they can say, look, here's a sacred area. So they can click on the icon that shows a sacred area um, and then they can click on the reason why it needs to be protected. Um, It's a sacred area for the women or it's a sacred area for traditional festivals. And and in some cases, they don't actually go down to that far because some of that knowledge is, in fact, confidential and, and, and sacred and they don't share it. But in other cases, they say, look, here's an area we just need protected because we need it protected well, here's an area where we gather food or here's a watering hole. And so through that process, they've been able to map large areas of forest that they use. Um, these maps are then produced and they go to the company and they say, okay, look, these are the areas we would really appreciate you to keep your bulldozers out of. And please don't fill these trees, for example, because we, in, the, in the dry season we harvest the caterpillars from these trees. It's an important uh, food product. And so what's happened is there's a dialogue being started through this handheld
8: The radio station will also benefit the pygmies in other ways. It will give them better access to information about doctor visits, vaccinations and AIDS awareness.
9: Everyone can make their own programs and put out their their stories, their concerns, their music. We can um, make sure that information about the visits of the doctor are going out there, because in the past, for example, the doctor would go out to uh, make a vaccination program for the children, but half the children would be in the forest, you know, for one reason or another. And so there's, there's issues like that. But if we can say on the radio, hey, look, you know, at the second moon or whatever, the, uh, the doctor will be at this place, then the chances of um, helping these communities and the kids out there to, uh, to get their vaccinations is going to be uh, much stronger.
8: The project's organisers have already started using the mapping technology in other neighbouring countries in the Congo Basin, particularly the vast Democratic Republic of Congo to the east. It looks like the pygmies of the Congo are finally finding their voice.
9: Radio-Oka.
5: Oh, and that was Mike Hopkin from The Nature Podcast talking to Scott Poynton about how radio can help pygmies find their voice on Pygmy FM.
1: It's The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Kat and if you have any science questions for us email chris at thenakedscientist.com Sorting out the sparks from the quarks The Naked Scientists. Jetton, you're live on The Naked Scientist. Hello.
4: Oh, hello there, guys. Hi, hi. That's
1: a great name. And where'd you get that? Thank you very much. Where'd you get that?
4: It's it's a former Yugoslavia,
1: Ah.
4: where I originally come from um first of all congratulations on your show It's absolutely brilliant i listened i have been listening for the last year or so Oh, I don't know, well no it's just i listen live and then I'll, i go online again just to, to re-listen again it's just absolutely great relive well, all those um, bits you're a bigger fan <laughs> than my mum <laughs> But seriously but anyway so, Chester, um, no, question, i've
1: got a question for you right how much is cat paying you to say this
4: <laughs> <laughs> no no this is just to honest me um uh, but the question I wanted to ask you is that uh, this summer we we experienced that with me and my friends we went on holiday um, back to Croatia. And then what happened is um, he got one green massive melon on his way down to the beach. He got one? A hey,
10: massive green melon?
4: Massive green Brilliant. melon. We're talking, about, we're talking about over six or seven kilos. It's a massive one. That, yeah. That's
5: a big The size of a small <laughs> it, dog.
4: <laughs> Seriously, it's, it's massive. I mean, and anyway, um, we went to the beach, and obviously uh, we didn't have any sort of a fridge or anything to, to put it on a, sort of later on, and we just left it in the sun. After three or four hours, uh, we, we cut it in half. And obviously, we, we wanted to eat, and it was quite chill, and we couldn't understand, none of us, uh, why did that happen when it was sort of similar sort of to that, that, that guy who asked you from Germany. Sort of a, it was on the sun for three or four hours, over 40 degrees, and, and when why we didn't cat- it get hot? Yeah, why did it yeah. not get hot? Uh, it, it was sort of quite chill, really, and uh, you know, we just didn't, we couldn't work out why did that happen. That was I think my there's question, a few things really. going
1: on here. Um, first of all, it's the shape, isn't it, Dave? Because of the surface area to volume ratio, Yeah, because
2: Yeah, um, because it's almost a sphere and the sphere, and the heat's going to get into it from the surface and a sphere's got the smaller surface area for its volume so it's going to have a lot of volume to heat up with not very much space for it to
1: get into. Not very uh, much space to soak up yeah. sunlight. And yeah. also it's
5: mostly water, isn't it, in melons? And water actually takes a lot of energy to heat up too.
1: Yeah, yeah, water's got a really high specific heat so you have to put enormous amounts of energy in just to raise the temperature by one degree. And also the flash is going to stop the water flowing
2: around so it's going to be quite hard... To so the water can't move with the heat. So the heat's actually got to go from each cell, from one cell to the next
1: cell to the next cell, the way through it. And also, Dave, what about... Um, we were talking about the beer bottle just now with so the... latent
5: heat you, of vaporisation. Yeah, as the towel
1: was getting... Uh, evaporation going on from the draft and the heat, could the melon be sort of metaphorically sweating, a little bit of water coming off turning into vapour and taking some heat with it to keep the melon cold? Yeah, if you leave fruit out in the, out for a long time it shrivels up so it must lose water somehow so I'm guessing the melon will be losing water and therefore heat that way too And uh, Jetton, just uh, a pearl of right. wisdom from our production team um, who are known for their scientific prowess they're saying a melon that big must inevitably have been genetically modified so it was probably heat resistant into the bargain
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Although I'd probably oh, Take that bit true. of melon with
1: a massive pinch of salt, actually. <laughs> but uh, does that answer that?
4: Yeah, well, uh, yeah. At least I've got sort of a yeah, yeah. But thank you anyway. Thanks for love. Thanks, oh, Brandon. Hey, cheers. All right, well, cheers. Thank it was
1: a great question. Okay. Thank you. See bye. you later. Uh, what a wonderful question massive melons
5: <laughs> i love the idea a melon the size of a dog
1: Dave have got a got a question here from john in peterborough he says his television remote control stopped working so he replaced the batteries the new batteries got very very hot too hot to touch what could be causing that well the normal thing which causes a battery
2: to get that hot is if you get something called a short circuit this is where instead of the electricity going through a whole lot of electronics and it's got quite a lot of resistance it can just go straight through a piece of metal through the battery round and back in again this means the electricity can go round and round in circles and loses uses it drops all of the energy inside the battery so the battery gets very hot very quickly and it'll go flat in a matter of minutes let alone hours
5: so this chap's remote control is basically knackered
2: I reckon it's probably that all the batteries were somehow put in a strange way or a piece of metal got in are you saying you put the batteries in the, the wrong way it. if you just put the batteries in the wrong way that won't have that effect but if you manage to get the batteries in such a way as electricity could go in a straight circle round the um Through the batteries and round some metal, and that could cause it. But it's more likely there's something wrong with the remote control. Okay, got an
1: email here from Francis Um, Tapon. Thanks, Dave, for that. Uh, Choice of two questions. You can have a go. I think there's probably one each here. Um, One, Francis wants to know how far can I drop an ant, Dave, before it dies? They seem pretty tough.
2: Um, I would have thought you could drop an ant as far as you liked, because I think with something as so small as an ant, it's, it's terminal velocity, that's how fast it, the it'll go through through air, isn't fast enough to kill it. So if, even if you dropped it off out of a plane, it would only be dropping at maybe 10
1: metres per second, and it could survive an impact like that. And uh, how fast can you drop an E? Only joking, cat. Um, does urinating on plants, Francis wonders, help or hurt them? I suspect a little urine helps, especially every little helps, especially if it's clear and not very yellow. But perhaps too much urine could kill the plant. What do you think?
5: I think she's probably right. Um, Wee contains. He actually Francis with an I. Um, I think he's probably right then. Um, Yes, particularly men who like peeing all over the garden. Um, Yeah, I think you're probably right in that a bit of wee um, contains lots of things like nitrates. Uh, These are things that plants need. They act like fertilisers, and especially if your urine's not too concentrated, so you've been drinking lots of water, you'll be watering it, getting a bit of nitrates, phosphates in there. It's good for the plant, but obviously if you do it too much, and particularly in one space on your garden. Um, you're going to build up a concentration of salts in that area and probably actually not enough water is going to get to the plants. You'll, you'll start to affect the osmosis of water into their roots and you can see this if you've got a dog, like my old dog, who only used to pee in one place in the garden. And just, it's
1: fussy isn't, <laughs> isn't <it?
5: laughs> Yeah, the grass was totally dead just in one spot. There was that a cricket spot. game that was
1: thwarted in the week just gone by uh, because the, the ground played host to an Arctic Monkeys rock concert and the toilets apparently were a bit fetid so no one would go in them so everyone was using the Outfield as a, a sort of latrine, and when they resumed action as a cricket pitch, all the players stationed around the outfield were nearly passing out every time they had to dive for a ball because oh. they said the stench was so bad. It is The Naked scientists it's Chris, Dave, and Kat, and we're taking your science questions. Email Chris at The Naked The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by The And now on The Naked Scientist, time to cross the pond and
3: catch up with the crew from Science Update. This week, for the Naked Scientists, I'm going to talk about why diet foods might actually make kids fat. But first, Suzanne's going to tell us why the placebo effect works on some people and not others. Some patients get powerful
10: pain relief from a sugar pill if they're told it's real medicine. It's called the placebo effect, and scientists have long puzzled over what causes it and why it helps some people more than others. Now University of Michigan neuroscientist John Carr-Subietta and his colleagues have found that people who get the most pain relief from placebos also show increased activity in a tiny region of the brain called the nucleus accumbens.
11: So basically what this was telling us is that placebo activates dopamine and that the magnitude of activation in this particular brain region predicted how well the placebo was going to work.
10: Subieta doesn't know why some people have more dopamine activity in the
3: nucleus accumbens and therefore respond better to placebos, but he thinks genetics may play a role. Thanks, Suzanne. A new study suggests that popular diet foods could actually cause children to overeat and gain weight. A team of researchers at the University of Alberta found that when they fed juvenile rats low-calorie foods that taste just like higher-calorie versions, the rats began to overeat their normal diet. Sociologist David Pierce explains.
11: In the young juvenile rat, their bodily system is, in some sense, fooled by the taste cue such that the body thinks that it hadn't had any calories, so they ate more at their regular
3: meal. Pierce says that rats and humans have a similar response to taste conditioning, so children might be prone to overeat if exposed to diet foods when they're young. Instead, he suggests offering kids healthful, nutritious meals and leaving the low-calorie options on supermarket shelves.
10: Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll tell you about a computer with a sense of humor. Until
3: then, I'm Suzanne Bard. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists.
1: Thanks, guys. And you can find out more about Science Update from their website. That's scienceupdate.com. I've got a question here for you, Chris. Um, This is from
2: Colin Campbell. Um, Apparently his girlfriend's got O-negative blood and he's got O-positive blood and she's heard that there can be problems with pregnancies because of the two Mm. blood types. Is this correct and what are the consequences? Yeah, Yeah, it's called the rhesus
1: effect. Uh, The rhesus gene adds an extra blood label to the surface of your cells in the same way as everyone's heard of group A, group B and group O. Well, this is d and it's an extra marker on the surface of red blood cells, if you are rhesus negative as a mother, it means you don't have any antibodies in your blood against this because you've never seen it, and your cells don't have this marker on them. If you have a husband or a partner who is rhesus positive, then the baby can be rhesus positive. And when the baby's born, blood from the baby can get into the mother's bloodstream. And this is like giving the mother an injection with blood which she's never seen before so the mother makes antibodies against that blood doesn't harm the baby the first time round but in the next pregnancy as mothers protect their babies from 30 weeks of gestation by putting a cross-section of all the antibodies going around the mum's blood into the baby's circulation the mum will start adding in her next pregnancy these anti-d antibodies into the developing baby and if that baby is rhesus positive positive those antibodies will lock onto the baby's blood cells and start to destroy them. And so you can get a baby that has anemia inside the mother. And the only way to deal with that is to take the baby out quick or to give it blood transfusions actually in the uterus, which, which can be done, and nowadays it's not such a problem. But to prevent this happening in the first place, people who are known to have this or be at risk of this problem are given a dose of immunoglobulins, antibodies, when the baby's born, which soaks up any of the baby's blood in the mother's bloodstream and should therefore stop it happening.
5: Interesting. Um, and we've got a question here from Steve Bayok, who's in the uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, hello, Steve, out there. And um, he says, how is it that like bacteria that you eat, basically on food, so if you get food poisoning, you've eaten dodgy bacteria in your food how do they manage to brave the cocktail of acid in our stomachs Uh, do they just make a kind of quick escape out of into the guts Um, or do they are they sort of superheroes and can survive in that environment some bacteria
1: just really tough and they have these protective layers around them that enable them to slip through and survive acid some viruses even which uh, need to infect via the gut are actually or they need acid in the stomach to break open the surface of the virus, a bit like pulling the pin on a hand grenade to activate the virus so it can then infect you when it gets down into your small intestines. That's a virus, a bit different. But other bacteria have other clever ways of doing it. Some form spores, things called clostridium, Those are uh, things like Clostridium perfringens, which causes gas gangrene, but that family of bacteria forms spores. In fact, C. diff, Clostridium difficile, which everyone's heard of, causes nasty diarrhoea, especially in people who are in hospital and not very well anyway. Those spores are tiny husks of dried-up bacterium. It's almost like in suspended animation, and they can pass through the stomach acid without being damaged at all, and then they come back to life where the environment's nicer, when they're in the intestines. And the other thing that bacteria do is some things, like Helicobacter pylori, which is to causing stomach ulcers and stomach cancer they actually encode an enzyme called urease and urease breaks down urea which is at low levels in all our tissues and it turns urea into ammonia and ammonia is alkaline and so the bacteria kind of have this suit of armor around them a chemical suit of armor which is alkaline it neutralizes the acid
5: that is pretty clever
1: now look one very quick one for you cat before we have to go and find out about out-of-body experiences which is what we're going to do in just a second i want to ask you this one it's from shane battersby he uh, actually works in australia and he says i really love your show and uh, my question is i work near non-ionizing radiation in my work what is this and is it dangerous
5: um the answer is is non-ionizing radiation isn't really as dangerous as ionizing radiation now ionizing radiation is the sort of stuff that we know can damage your cells so that's things like x-rays a uh, sort of radiation that's in you know when you drop an atomic bomb this is gamma rays alpha rays beta waves um the sort of stuff that can damage the dna in your cells and cause things like cancer or cause your cells to die because so that's ionizing radiation it's so called cool because it it creates ions Um, by interacting with the atoms that are in your cells. Non-ionising radiation doesn't really have the energy to do this, so it's certainly not going to damage your DNA in that kind of way. So no, it's not really thought to be harmful, and certainly not harmful in the same way that ionising radiation is.
9: Normal
1: light
2: is a kind of non-ionising radiation, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Thanks, Kat. Now, have you ever felt that you were floating above your own body? Because if you have, then you might have experienced a spooky sensation that we all call an out-of-body experience. Now, these can be really scary if if you're having one, but uh, they're also really fascinating for scientists who can use them to find out how the brain deals with information coming in from our senses. And so we sent our own Mira Senthalingam to find out about a team of scientists who recently announced that they can trigger out-of-body experiences at will.
10: An out-of-body experience an experience that typically involves the sensation of floating outside of your own body, and in some cases, seeing your physical body from a distance. This is probably something you'd only normally associate with people who've just come off the operating table, or people who like their share of psychedelic drugs. But now, two teams, led by Professor Olaf Blanke from Ecole Polytechnique in Switzerland, and Dr Henrik Erschen from UCL, have managed to create the eerie effect of an out-of-body experience in normal, awake people just with the aid of a virtual reality headset and a back rub. And they think that the discovery might help, amongst other things, to train better surgeons. But how did they do it? Well, volunteers were rigged up with goggles containing miniature screens onto which the researchers could project images from a video camera. The camera was positioned behind the volunteers so that they could see themselves from behind on the screens in their goggles. The researchers then took a rod and rubbed the subjects on the back, which they could also see on the images from the camera. This fooled the subject's brains into thinking that the projected images they were seeing on the screen was them outside of their own body, as Dr. Henrik Ayrshen explained when the discovery was announced recently at a meeting in London.
4: The
1: idea is to manipulate, to change
4: the visual
8: input or its relation to the tactile information. And if we change it in the right way, we should be able to change the feeling of where yourself is located in space. We should be able to move it to point outside
4: your physical body, even into out-of-body experiences.
10: Surely nobody would really fall for this, would they? I managed to speak to Olaf himself to find out what happened.
6: We tried to manipulate where you see being touched and where you feel being touched. And we were interested in learning whether by doing such a procedure and asking later subjects where they really believed they were, whether we could Displaced and actually make them insecure about where they really are. And this is what we, we hopefully has, have accomplished, at least the first step with this. People were filmed from the back. A camera was standing two meters behind them, and their back was stroken with a large pen. And this was filmed in real time and projected to a head-mounted display, goggles. And so they were seeing their own bodies being stroked two meters in front of them. What then happens after a while is that you really start localizing and feeling the touch, where you actually see it. So what this then suggests to us, that the partial phenomenon of an out-of-body experience can be reproduced in a completely healthy healthy subjects.
10: I have to admit, I'm quite upset that we didn't get to have a go on it today. I, so, I mean, I know you've done it yourself, so can you explain how you actually felt when you yes. had a go?
6: So a lot of subjects felt it was was kind of strange and weird. What I had is, it was really a strange sensation This that you feel the touch, where you actually see the touch. Although as a subject, you know, of course, that this is absolutely not the case, because you have... Partial insight into the experiment. Even as the person who set up the experiment, you should even more aware that this shouldn't work, but actually it does work. So, and I think it's a nice finding because it seems to be so automatic, based on brain processes that you don't cannot control by higher level mechanisms, language, memory, thought.
10: I know that the the applications that have been discussed are things like gaming, which is quite an obvious one, but also you've mentioned surgery, and I don't really understand how that could happen.
6: It needs to be tested, and I'm I'm sure a lot of surgeons would be be hesitant to to immediately try. A lot of people who don't operate, actually, who want to learn to operate, I think for them it could be interesting that they are somehow linked to the motor inputs and tactile inputs from the actual real surgeon, because that might be much more actively perceived than just watching the operation.
10: So, ambitious medics could soon feel the dexterity of their awesome supervisors. And forget about the new generation of motion-sensitive consoles. Soon you could fight monsters head-on in the world of gaming. All by causing confusion between your senses. These studies look like the beginning of a lot more research into these OBEs, tricking further volunteers into believing they're somewhere else. But self consciousness is a principle pondered not only by scientists, but philosophers as well. I'll leave you with Thomas Metzinger's insight.
6: What we have created really is what philosophers call non conceptual self consciousness on a bodily level with only two sensory modalities. You just stand or sit there, but still you get this externalized self-location. And this seems also to show that it is very old, very low-level brain mechanisms that are responsible for our everyday experience of being an embodied self.
5: So there we are, looking at out-of-body experiences, can tell us about what it actually means to be inside our bodies. And that was uh, thanks to our roving reporter, Mira Synthilingam.
1: It's The Naked Scientist with Chris, Kat and Dave and if you have any science questions for us email chris at dot com. Now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll for this week's Question of the Week
7: Hello and welcome to a Meteorological Question of the Week with me, Diana O'Carroll Today we'll be looking at how an old arm injury reacts to the weather as Kat from Leeds asks this question
4: I broke my elbow when I was younger, and now, when there's a sudden change in the weather, the joint really aches. I assume it's got something to do with the change in air pressure as a new weather front moves into the area,
7: and if that's right, then how will it make my arm hurt? So can we use the broken bits of our bodies to measure or even forecast the weather? Well, I spoke to Mr Graham Tithily-Strong, consultant orthopaedic shoulder and elbow surgeon at the Nuffield and Adam Brooks Hospitals in Cambridge.
11: Nobody's really too sure why people uh, get this or why it's been... There are some people that talk about a microclimate actually at at the skin. And the hypothesis is that during, for example, a, a cold wave, the temperature tends to drop and the humidity level tends to elevate. And what happens, although you could be indoors with some clothes on, the pressure changes and it gets a bit damper. The reason we think it's to do with change, they've also done some studies where they looked at people who've remained in an environment where they've got a sort of stable indoor ambient conditions. And in those people, they know that people's problems stabilize quite nicely. So if you stay in a a nice ambient condition, it doesn't really matter how cold or or hot that room is, people's conditions uh, remain much the same. The difficult thing is that there isn't really a test that quantifies how bad someone's pain is. People have done various studies where they've looked at the various parameters that can mimic an inflammatory disease or an x-ray, but nothing really changes on those. So the science behind it is pretty weak.
7: So to summarise, in this particular case, science can't tell its isobars from its elbows. Changing clothes create microclimates next to the skin, but we still can't measure pain objectively. Corinne from the Netherlands added that chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndromes, or CFIDS, work very well as barometers too. She noted that with a drop in air pressure, there's often a sudden hit of more fatigue, and that this passes as soon as the rain starts. Could the mechanics for this be the same with damaged tissue? Either way, it's probably best to check with the Met Office before you go out gathering injuries to become a human barometer. From weather to feather, next week we'll be trying to find out how cuckoos know which species they belong to.
9: Hi, my name's Dick Hawkins, I'm calling from Napier, New Zealand. I've got a small aviary at home with several different species of birds in it and every so
1: often when I have to add another one there because of natural losses, the different birds always seem to know what they are, they don't get confused, the budgies don't try and mate with the canaries and the finches don't shack up with the canaries. So I was wondering how they actually knew what they were and I assumed it was just from how they were brought up by the parents. It then did occur to me that how on earth do cuckoos manage? Because cuckoos being brought up by a foster parent of a totally different species eventually go off and spend a life as a cuckoo, behaving like a cuckoo and finding another cuckoo to mate with.
7: And we'll be looking into gas expulsion in orbit with Aaron's question.
9: Hello, my name's Aaron Jenkins. Given the gravity is required to separate the gases from liquids and solids in your stomach, the process or effectiveness of burping must be impossible or greatly diminished when in space. Assuming that the total amount of gas produced during digestion of food is independent of the strength of the gravitational field, how is the excess of digestive gas expelled from the body? Because if there's one place you don't want to be farting, it's probably in a spacesuit. Does this problem exist? And does NASA take this into account when designing menus for astronauts? Thank you very much.
7: Do you have any thoughts on ornithological self-identity? Is it something determined by genetics or the environment? What would you recommend for an astronaut to eat in space? And do you have any more questions of your own? Drop an email to me on question of the week at the naked That's all for now. Back to the studio.
2: So, how does a cuckoo who know who's who? And in space, can no one hear you burp? Let us know by emailing this question of the week at, to naked to chris at the
1: Laying the facts bare. The naked scientists. Frank's got in touch. He's in Hickling and he says, before we had a fridge in our caravan, we put milk under our van covered with a wet towel to keep it cool, which is a bit like your sort of beer cooling towel phenomenon we were discussing earlier. Also, uh, Bob is a taxi driver in South End NC says, my question is, is heart disease reversible?
5: I don't think so. Um, heart disease is kind of when your arteries are, are getting blocked up with stuff. If they can find some way of scraping all that stuff out, then it might be. But also, when you have a, a heart attack, that's actually when parts of your heart muscle have got... The, that blood supply's got so blocked off that that muscle's actually died. So, unless you could repair it with, say, muscle stem cells or something like that, I don't I don't think you could reverse it.
1: In terms bit. of opening up the blood vessels, though, there's quite a lot of promise in this area. Yeah, you can get stents and things. That's right. There's two ways of doing this. One is that you can go in, open up the chest and do a bypass operation where you borrow a bit of blood vessel, usually a vein from the leg, the saphenous vein, and you graft that across, you bridge across the blockage in the coronary artery so blood can get through. And you can also borrow an artery from the wall of the chest as well to do this. The newer way of doing it, much more um, patient-friendly because you don't have to do massive operations on people, is to thread a line up through uh, an artery in the leg, the femoral artery up into your heart and you stick a wire down into the inside the coronary artery of the heart and you do all this under a scanner so you can see where it's going and then you blow a balloon up inside the artery which squashes all of the blockage the fatty material out of the way and then you prop the artery open using a metal cage called a stent and there are newer forms of stents now that squirt out drugs that can actually treat the disease inside the artery and stop the disease recurring we think that's good news Now, Dave, this noise that you were subjecting us to earlier, tell us, what was this all about? Okay, so what we asked you to do was get a
2: decent quality wine glass, um, put a little bit of water in it, um, clean your finger off, probably in your mouth, that's a good way to clean it, Um, if it's not too dirty, um, make your finger wet, and then rub around the glass, which makes a noise a bit like this, which is kind of, some people find it unpleasant, particularly cats. Okay, so what's going on here? Cats or our own cat? (laughs) Definitely our own cat. I don't know about cats. Sort of fingers down the blackboard. If you know at home, tell us whether your cat likes it. Um, Okay, so what's happening is when your finger moves around the glass, it tends to stick and then slip and then stick and then slip and stick and then slip, which vibrates the glass. Now, the glass vibrates very well at a certain frequency, in the same way as a swing. If you push a swing at the right speed, the swing will get bigger and bigger and bigger, so the glass's vibration gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that depends on the glass. So with a smaller glass, it will be a higher pitch, and a bigger glass tends to be a lower pitch now what i asked you to do was to get the glass um vibrating really well
1: and then try and to pour the glass out of it while it's still vibrating like that I'm actually pouring the liquid out as and that's why the, the tone is changing yeah so, so to do that again that's amazing so getting it vibrating nicely and as you pour it out
2: the tone changes you can almost completely. play a tune. Why is that happening? Well, what's happening is as the water moves up near the rim, the rim's a bit which is vibrating the most. It basically makes that rim heavier. In the same way as when you use a heavier guitar string, it makes a pitch lower. Like making the rim of the glass will make it heavier will make the glass vibrate at a lower frequency, so at a lower pitch. So as
1: the water moves up there the pitch gets lower and lower and lower, it moves away again, it goes up again. And this would be why, for instance, a bass guitar has big chunky strings, whereas if you go to the higher notes they're always almost in little thready things.
2: Yeah, it's got less weight. If it's something a little bass guitar has got more weight to move, so everything happens more slowly. And in the non-musical environment, where, where else in the real world would you see this kind I of mean, effect? It can be useful in tuning um, the frequency of things vibrate. So if you're building a big skyscraper um, in an area where you get earthquakes for a certain frequency, um, you really don't want that, vi- that skyscraper to vibrate at the same frequency as the earthquake because then the vibration get really big and it'd fall over. So if you put, if you add weight to the top, especially if you damp that weight, you can absorb, you can um, change the resonant frequency and stop it falling over
1: Brilliant, thanks Dave, what a wonderful experiment and you can find more wonderful kitchen science experiments like that on our website at nakerscientist.com forward slash kitchen science Now Kat, Mark in Bletchley has got in touch and he says how close is that asteroid they've been going on about going to come to us? Have I got to build a shelter?
5: Run away, run away! Um, this uh, uh, this asteroid is something called Apophis, Apophis and it is due to fly past Earth in 2029 and there's some speculation that it could actually come back and collide with Earth a bit later which is slightly worrying. Um, and there's a company in Stevenage this week who've announced that they want to build a little spacecraft to go out and rendezvous with this asteroid to kind of find out what it thinks it's up to. Obviously not, not the sort of anthropomorphic...
1: Asteroid interrogation. It's like,
5: would you mind turning left at Mars? Thanks. Um, but to try and find out what this asteroid thinks it's going to... Uh, where it Why thinks it's going to go. Why do we do that from Earth?
1: Why do we need to build a space rocket to do um,
5: that? Because I think the measurements that we can make aren't accurate enough from Earth, so they want to go out and find find out um more about this asteroid where it thinks it's going and then if it, they can get that information early enough then we might just be able to kind of knock it out of out of so our should way Mark
1: build a shelter?
5: um probably not unless you know you've
1: got a while you, until you need to anyway yeah you, you've years. probably got
5: about yeah 20 30 years unless you just want to go down there and put tin foil hat on your head just uh, in case
1: and just as we come up towards the end albert in norwich has a question about how long we live hello albert Yes, I would like to know
11: um, how, how long uh, you're you, deter, determined your lifespan. I mean, uh, some people will, uh, will live to eighty-one, another in the family will live to a hundred.
6: Hmm.
1: And you're wondering what sets that biological what, clock? What
11: gives? It, I mean, what does what does what does body determine how long you're going to live for? There
1: are a number of factors here. Um, one of them is the size of the animal, because if you look at a mouse, it doesn't live as long as a human. Most mice in the wild live. Six weeks, that's the average age for a mouse to die in the wild. If you keep them in ideal conditions in a laboratory, feed them perfectly and keep them nice and warm and away from owls and things that like to eat them, they can live for two, a pinch, two and a half years and then they die. But a human, as you say, will go on for 80, sometimes 100 years. So there's obviously got to be a genetic component to this because the thing that separates us from mice is a small difference in our genetics. So there has to be something, some genetic Driver that dictates how long a mouse lives and how long a human lives. There are some other factors, of course. Humans have different lifestyles, and oh, if I mean, you oh. stuff yourself with drugs and drink and eat eat all the wrong things, then of course you'll bring your life to a premature close. But we know that longevity runs in families up to a point. If families have huge numbers of what are called super centenarians, people who live more than 100 years, there's a very good chance that you will yourself. And if people, conversely, die very, very young in a family, there's a good chance that the same thing will happen to you. What do you think, Kat?
5: I think that's right. And there is, there's increasing evidence that things like your cellular metabolism might actually have to do with uh, how you age. So, interesting stuff.
1: Okay. Albert, I, I, I guess we're sort of running out of time, but does that kind of give you an inkling? Yeah.
11: All I was going to say is that, uh, I mean, some, some, uh, the, some of these uh, tortoises, you hear about these tortoises who lived about 200, don't
1: they? Yeah, the difference with them, though, Albert, is they're cold-blooded, and so they don't have the same metabolic rate no, that we do. So, so then, Exactly, they're not producing as much energy or doing themselves as much of an injury to their cells as we are by being warm-blooded. It's the price we pay for the lifestyle we have, I'm afraid. Thanks okay. for calling. Good to have Thanks you on the lot, show. Anyway. I love your programme. Thank you, Albert. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to our wonderful team, Ben Valsall and Petro Minch on production, to Dr. Dave and Dr. Cat for doing an amazing job. We're back next week. with very much of the same. We're going through our immense mailbag of science questions. Just email your questions, chris at nakedscientist.com. We'll take a look at them for you next week. Until then, goodbye.